Hey guys, this is Dave. I need to sit today's show out for uh, reasons that probably sound obvious. Oh. Oh man. Oh, Chuck was a frog last week, and it worked out okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I seriously hope that you don't have what I had. Me too. I was in Dallas last week, and now today I've got a headache. And there, there's your opening joke. <laughs> you guys have a great show and I'll catch up with you next week this episode is sponsored by Hired.com every week on Hired they run an auction where over a thousand tech companies in San Francisco, New York and LA bid on Ruby developers providing them with salary and equity up front the average Ruby developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the Ruby Rogues link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept the job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash Ruby Rogues. This episode is sponsored by Rackspace. Are you looking for a place to host your latest creation? Want terrific support? High performance? All backed by the largest open source cloud? What if you could try it for free? Try out Rackspace at rubyrogues.com slash Rackspace and get a $300 credit over six months. That's $50 per month at rubyrogues.com slash Rackspace. This episode is sponsored by Codeship.io. Don't you wish you could simply deploy your code every time your test passed? Wouldn't it be nice if it were tied into a nice continuous integration system? That's Codeship. They run your code. If all your tests pass, they deploy your code automatically for fuss-free, continuous delivery. Check them out at Codeship.io. Continuous delivery made simple. Snap is a hosted CI and continuous delivery that is simple and intuitive. Snap's deployment pipelines deliver fast feedback and can push healthy builds to multiple environments automatically or on demand. Snap integrates deeply with GitHub and has great support for different languages, data stores, and testing frameworks. Snap deploys your application to cloud services like Heroku, DigitalOcean, AWS, and many more. Try Snap for free. Sign up at snapci.com slash rubyrogues. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 179 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel we have Jessica Kerr. Good morning. Saranyat Bark. Hey everybody. I think I'm going to do all the ladies first. We have a special guest, Megan Waller. Good morning. Do you want to introduce yourself really quickly? Sure. Uh, my name is Megan Waller. I'm a Ruby and Rails developer from Clearwater, Florida. Awesome. And Avdi and I are here too. Hello. We brought you on today to talk about uh, some of the accountability and social justice stuff that you've been talking about lately. I'm not really sure where the best place to start is, so why don't you kind of get us going? Okay, so I've mostly been talking more about accountability and social justice after I volunteered with some programs that I like to call the pipeline programs, like Girls Who Code and Girl Develop It. Noticed that I was volunteering for these programs and these women were getting really excited, but I wasn't seeing them at conferences, speaking or in the workforce. And I wanted to sort of examine what was happening there because these programs are being funded by big tech companies and they release their diversity numbers and there's no women that work at their companies. And so it seemed like there's like this disconnect there. So I wanted to start talking more about how we as a tech community can be more accountable and not sort of defer that responsibility to maybe future generations by just 
helping you know women uh, and like young kids get into programming how we can sort of foster like accountability in our communities and in our jobs right now very cool so one thing that i see a lot of is yeah people basically throwing out that it's not my problem or it doesn't affect me kinds of things so how do you address accountability for those folks when it really doesn't directly affect them you know it doesn't make it harder for them to find a job it doesn't make it harder for them to get their job done Right. Yeah, it's really easy to, when you're in a position of privilege, to say something like, I'm not really part of the problem, or that doesn't really seem to affect me. But the thing is, is that when our companies aren't diverse, when we don't hold ourselves accountable, you're counting off and you're discounting like a huge group of people that could be bringing different experiences and just different attitudes to the workforce that can be beneficial. That obviously shouldn't be the main reason why you want to be accountable or why you want to try and aim for a diverse workforce, but it's all part of our problems. It's everyone's responsibility to be accountable and to aim to have diverse environments. There was something at a conference, it was at Distill in San Francisco a few months ago, and one of the lightning talks, a woman got up and she is a theatrical, she's a psychologist, but she particularly works through theater with teams. And she did a great little presentation, the key takeaway of which was when your team is more diverse, it's not just that you get different ideas and new ideas from the members who aren't like everybody else. It's that everybody on the team produces more ideas than they would in a homogenous environment. She said that when a team is a group of people who are a lot alike, then in their actions, they emphasize that commonality. And when you add in some people who don't share those same common things, like the common geek things or aren't men or aren't white, then everybody starts bringing out the parts of them that don't fit in with the crowd the same way. That there's a diversity within each of us that comes out better when there's an obvious diversity in our teams. Yeah. That's that's interesting. That's really interesting. So I feel like if I already have a team, and let's just, you know, pretend I'm a white man, and I have a team of, you know, other white men, and my team is awesome, and we're making great products, my first reaction to that would be, well, that's nice, but everything is great as it is. So why do, you know, knowing that I already have a settled team, and something that seems to work for me, why should I go out of my way to figure out how to diversify that? And especially if that would include no, does that mean I need to fire some people and get other people? Like, how does that work for an established group of people? Right. That's where I think there's this sort of this myth that in order to sort of foster a diverse team, you have to either let go of people who are talented and who work who you work well with, or you have to not hire people that are, are good people, good developers or what have you. And this is just not true. I'm going to prime the pump a little bit here yeah. because I hear the same thing regarding like, you know, in our business best interest, you know, we want to hire the best candidate that we can. And right. so again, you know, it kind of goes back to, you know, if I have a, a man that's a better candidate than a woman, are you telling me that I need to hire the woman because she's a woman? Right. So there's this study that I'm sure that you all have seen. It's been going around, but they have like the resume of the man and the woman They both have everything exactly the same. And the only difference is that one of them is named like Joe and then one of them is named Jill. And like regardless of who is the interviewer, who's the hire, who's in charge of hiring man or woman, 
they always give more preference to the to the male resume. So there's these biases that we have just by growing up in a society that is sexist or is racist that tells us that men and white men are just better at doing something than that of a woman, regardless of if they have the same exact education, the same experience, everything. So to say that, do I just have to hire women instead of hiring a man who is also qualified? That sort of line of thinking doesn't really apply unless there's the barrier to entry is the same for everyone. And that's just not the case right now. And so we need to be proactive and uh, sort of like, just sort of make sure that when we're reviewing resumes or when we're reviewing hiring or any of those roles that we might fall into, uh, that we're aware of these biases that might come into play and sort of see how we, we might be enacting them or sort of making them come through th- these biases that we may or may not know that we have. Well, and that's that's the thing that's really tricky, right? Is that, I mean, I don't think I'm sexist, but right. if you put those two resumes in front of me, I honestly couldn't tell you if I would react that way. And so, you know, so Chuck, the studies do show that those people who know that they have a sexist bias exhibit the least sexist bias. Really? Yeah. Yeah. It's the same. um, I think it's the same group of studies, but people who are aware of the bias can compensate for it. Mm -hmm. And the people who deny that they have it can't compensate for it. Right. The whole idea that a less qualified Um, woman is going to be hired over a man, there's this assumption in there that based on resumes and if we're lucky, an interview, we can put people in a line and say exactly who is more qualified than who. And I laugh at that. That's such a joke because when you look at a resume and you look at a job description and you're trying to like line people up in orders of qualification... We don't have that kind of resolution in telling how qualified people are. And when we don't, we make guesses and we go with our gut. And our gut does associations with what it's seen before. And that's where the bias is coming in when we don't see it. Yep, absolutely. Yep. And yeah. I think it, I think it's also pretty silly for anyone to uh, to just count themselves off and say, well, I'm not sexist, so this isn't my problem because everyone – if you live on planet Earth, you have some sexist biases just simply by being a member of society. I know that I personally, even as a woman, I have uh, internalized sexism sometimes. I have to check myself constantly. Absolutely. When we say that everyone has sexist biases, we're not saying that anyone's a bad person for having grown up in this culture. I mean, it's like everyone winds up using or buying goods that are made in China by people who aren't paid a fair wage. It's just a part of living here. We can't really help it. All we can do is try to help in the small ways we have. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think it's interesting. I just want to hark back to this. So just be aware that you may have biases that you're not aware of. So, you know, you're not consciously being sexist or racist or whatever, but be aware that you might subconsciously be doing that and, uh, you know, just explore a little bit deeper to make sure that you aren't allowing those biases to create situations where somebody is then not treated right or not treated fairly. Mm-hmm. So we've talked so, about hiring. Megan, what are some things that ordinary developers can do just a little bit differently to be more part of the solution? 
Okay, so something that I just talked about was this barrier to entry, and that sort of starts at the job description level. I recently was looking for a new job, and I was reading tons of job descriptions, and there were a few that really stuck out to me as companies that I'd want to work for, and there were job descriptions that said things like, we're looking for people who are excited to learn about new technologies instead of saying, we're looking for coding gurus or, you know, programming rock stars or whatever, just these simple things that you can do that we know for a fact women shy away from these roles or uh, marginalized people shy away from job descriptions that look like this, that we can sort of start to make that barrier to entry a little more level across the playing field. And so if you're at a company and if you are able to have any say in, you know, job descriptions or if you can talk to somebody who writes them, this is like a really important like step zero for making sure that you're trying to hire a more diverse workforce. Oh, I did that at my company. I did that at Outpace Mm -hmm. Um, because I I try to help with recruiting when I'm at conferences and I looked at the job description on the website and I was like, oh, can I help you with this? And they were like, oh, yes, we would love it if you would help with this. It's a great way that you can like contribute to your company and it actually looks really good, like you're involved in care and you can help all the candidates out there. There was something in there about working out, some sort of weightlifting analogy that I was like, no, no, please just take that out. Yes, yes. <laughs> so uh, I have to ask, you know, just out of sheer ignorance, you mentioned a few things. What types of things really show up in these job listings that make it so that you don't get as diverse a group of candidates coming to your door to work at your company? I know I've seen listings that like to list off, you know, perks of the company and some of the times the perks are things like, we like to stay late and play ping pong and drink out of our kegerator. Like these things could be uh, potential no-goes for people who might have families or for people who might not drink. So like just things like that are just right off the bat indicators to somebody that this might not be a place that they want to work, regardless of how uh, kind everyone is or how talented or even if there are a few people that would fall into like a marginalized group. I've seen listings where they list things like we have chocolate on demand and we also have women developers, like as if women (laughs) and chocolate are comparable perks at all. (laughs) And those kind of things, I mean, maybe you really are looking for that archetype of the young 80 hour a week developer whom you can convince it's no, really, this is worth it to you to spend your entire life on this company. But they're excluding a lot more than women in that. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. It's not just about women. The people who don't drink is a big one. Yeah. I've seen a lot of improvement at conferences lately Mm -hmm. of parties and social activities that accommodate people who don't drink all the time. Yep. I'm going to open this bag of worms. Um, Is alcohol a problem at conferences? Hmm. I, th- I don't drink, and so I don't go to a lot of the drinking events anyway. I'm one of the people you're talking about in that case. Um, right. I'm Mormon, and we don't drink, so, I mean, it's pretty cut and dried for me. Uh, you know, I'll go if I want to socialize with folks, but I usually don't stay very long because I'm just not super happy at those events. So, right. you know. But-, but that's the problem. You're excluded. You're not explicitly excluded, but you're incentivized to leave. Yeah. The question I'm asking, though, is more along the lines of, you know, you hear about some of the more blatant and obvious bad things that happen at conferences, and they don't have an, happen often, but 
you know, does alcohol make those more likely to happen or cause more of those problems? Or is it more of just, you know, a, a cultural thing and we, we had a bag, bad egg show up to an event? Does so alcohol make that more likely to happen? I'm going to go with yes. However, you can't blame the alcohol. Right. Right. But I'll also say that I haven't been to too many conferences, but the ones that I have gone to where I've gone to the after events where we're at a bar or whatever, every time I've done that, I've had somebody come up to me and say something like, do you need help walking back to your hotel room tonight? Or I saw you speak today at the conference and you're really pretty. And like these things are just not things that they would say to you like in a different setting, I think. My bad experiences at conferences have, have pretty much always been when there's alcohol involved. The last conference I was at, I went to Nickel City Ruby. I thought what they did was really awesome. They had an event at night. They'd said, okay, we're going to be doing board game night for people who don't drink. And then we're going to also be doing the GitHub drink up if people are interested in that. So it gave people an option to do something else without feeling excluded. Yeah, Steel City Ruby similarly had a four-track party at a one-track conference. Oh, that's so cool. Everyone, <laughs> you could socialize and drink, socialize and not drink. You could play games. You could be quiet. I thought that was that was really good. That's awesome. Yeah. Now, and, you know, honestly, Chuck, on this alcohol question, I can't talk because I have done things that I regret and I find inappropriate at a conference after drinking a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, and I, I want to make it clear. I'm not advocating that we don't have drinking events at conferences, but I think it is an interesting topic that I've seen come up a few times. So mm-hmm. it is alcohol kind of magnifies everything. And when alcohol is ingrained in our culture, we're magnifying a lot of negative things about our culture, mm-hmm. our culture as developers. Yes. One thing I've seen a lot of conferences do in the last year, year and a half is instead of like a big party in the night, they've had alcohol available and non-alcoholic drinks immediately after the last talk. So you can stay around, have a couple drinks, socialize. If you want to go out and drink with people, you can arrange that. Mm -hmm. But it's a great balance of you can have a few drinks, but no one's getting wasted there Mm -hmm. at the conference event. And everyone gets an opportunity to socialize without feeling pressured to drink because it's only 6 o'clock. QCon New York was a great example of that. Very cool. I want to change the topic a little bit because we've talked a little bit about hiring women and making it, you know, making your job listings and things more inviting. But what about the guys that I don't do the hiring? I don't write the job postings. I'm not involved in that. I don't want to get involved in that. You know, I'm not some creepy guy that's going to follow women around at a conference or do horrible things to them or, you know, even give them creepy looks or anything, you know. What can I do? You know, what what can that guy do to help diversity in the community? So this is one of the the number one things about being an ally is uh, listening first off and then calling out other people who do do these things because you might personally not be, you know, that creepy guy or whatever. But if you're active on Twitter or if you go to a meetup or if you go to conferences, you've met somebody who is that creepy guy. And this thing, I've been in groups of men and women, and we've been at conferences, and somebody inevitably says something sexist, and one of the guys will be like, hey, man, you shouldn't say that because there's a woman here. 
And this, this bugs me so much. And so I think the number one thing you can do differently is, well, first off, what this says to me is that if I wasn't here, you wouldn't be stopping this guy's behavior. And so you're just sort of, this sort of perpetuates this myth of like the feminist killjoy or whatever, that now that she's in the group, you can't tell these jokes anymore. You can't say these things. So a better thing to do would be just saying something like, hey, man, you shouldn't say that because that makes me uncomfortable, not because that might make someone else uncomfortable. I feel like that's like the number one thing that you can do, uh, just calling out other people and letting them know that you're calling them out because it makes you uncomfortable or because you're not okay with it, not because the internet hate mob is going to come get you or something instead. Ooh, ooh, I've got one. Uh I've got one for you personally, Chuck. Okay. Just today when you opened the episode, you said, I'm going to let all the ladies go first. Can it not matter? Can gender just totally not be relevant? (laughs) It's just... uh... Now I'm uncomfortable. (laughs) (laughs) But you expected that, right? That was going to happen once. Yeah, totally. Well, and and that's part of the thing, too, is that, you know, we're talking about something... Well, let me back up. So I go to a conference or I get on the, the podcast and I'm talking about stuff that I know about you know, tech, I, you know, I'm comfortable talking about it, you know, even areas that I don't know a lot about, I'm comfortable talking about it, but there, there really aren't consequences for me being ignorant other than that, you know, Avdi will explain it to me, right? Um, <laughs> where with this particular topic, you know, with diversity, with, you know, feminism or, you know, the, the racial issues or things like that, if I get it wrong, I get in trouble. You know, the internet hate mob may just come after me. Or I may look like I'm intolerant of a group of people, and that's not cool, and things like that. And so, you know, it's uncomfortable when you're in the majority, when there's a vocal minority that may be upset with you for the way that you act or react. Just one thing there. Can I just, like, flip that on its head and say there's a chance that I may hurt someone? Yes, definitely. So why would you hurt someone? Like, what makes that likely to happen? Does that question make sense? Kind of. I have kind of an answer, and it's mostly just that I don't know that that's something that they would be sensitive to. Exactly. Like, I feel like the very first step in, you know, saying the right thing and making sure not to hurt someone is understanding what are the things that you could do to hurt someone. And the first part of that is listening. And the first part of that is diversifying your network. You know, like, you know, you and I, for example, have had conversations about race and gender off of the podcast. And, you know, the more that you diversify your network and the more that you the more perspectives you include in your world the more you learn and understand what these issues are what these pain points are what these struggles are and the less likely that you're going to hurt someone because you already understand the story you appreciate that perspective that's really the first thing that anyone can do to be an ally yeah absolutely unpacking your privilege and when you unpack your privilege you sort of see where inequalities happen and it makes you more aware and more empathetic with people who don't look like you this prevents you from saying things that might offend somebody but it's inevitable that we're all going to say things that offend somebody at some point and so it's also really important to know how to apologize and how to move forward from that and apologizing is not saying i'm sorry if i offended you it's i'm sorry that i offended you And here's what I'm going to do not to do that in the future. Those are all very important parts of being accountable and being a good ally. One thing that I want to point out from my end is that I have put my foot in my mouth. I have gone all the way to the knee, you know, saying just really dumb things. And for the most part, the people who I have said something that, you know, they're offended or 
at least bothered by what I said. When they point it out, they're very gracious when I apologize. And so for the most part, if you're trying and you don't mean to and you're willing to accept, hey, I screwed up and don't do it again. For the most part, I found that, you know, the folks that you are going to hurt are pretty gracious about it if you didn't mean it and you're willing to accept it. It's about learning from failure, right, Megan? Absolutely. (laughs) We're all so good at that, I hope. (laughs) Which is a transition into another thing that you as people can do to help women feel welcome in technology. And that's talk to us about technology, not about being women. Yes. Thank you. (laughs) All right. This episode's over. (laughs) (laughs) No, this episode is not over. This episode is starting. I watched your talk about learning from failure, and I was amazed by the personal stories that you told. You talked about being in high school and then college and being terrified of failure to the point that you would put it off and put it off until it became much worse than it could have been. Yes. And then you talked about being super excited about this apprenticeship program at 8th Flight because it was going to be really challenging and hard. So you went from fleeing anything hard to chasing after something that you knew it would would be hard. What changed there? So I think what really changed there is that I was working retail before this, and I was so bored by how unchallenged I was. And it had been a while since I had been in school. And so I was like, you know what? Maybe I'm ready for it now. Another thing that happened was that I got diagnosed ADHD after that, which sort of explained a little bit about my procrastination and my failures. And so when I got on uh, like ADHD medicine, I started feeling more ready for the challenge. I think that was a big part of it for me in being okay with maybe possibly failing at something. Somewhere in there, you read Carol Dweck? Yes. Was that yeah. before or after you started Eighth Light? That was after. Okay. Tell us about how, what you learned from that research. Okay, so Carol Dweck is a researcher and a psychologist from Stanford University, and she did this study where she found that a single line of praise can have a huge effect on uh, a child's ability or willingness to want to try something difficult and how they approach failure. Um, And so she would tell half of the students in a class that their line of praise was going to be you put a lot of work into this. Uh, I can tell you worked hard on this. And the other half of the class was going to be told that they must be smart. That's why they finished this. That's why they did well at this. And what ends up happening is when you tell students and when you tell people that they did something because of how smart they are, this innate intelligence that they have, what you're really doing is you're not giving them a recipe for responding to failure. They come up to it and they think, well, if I'm not smart enough to figure this out, and I have to exert effort to do it, then I'm sort of showing the world that I'm not smart anymore and I have to put effort into it and I can't cut it on my natural gifts. Whereas the, the students who were told that they were hard workers or that they put a lot of effort into something, when they come up to something hard, their conclusion is that uh, they didn't try hard enough or they could have focused harder or they could have studied more. And this sort of, I feel like in the developer community especially, I've ran into so many people who were called smart when they were kids and I've given this talk a few times now, and every time I've had people come up to me and they're like, how did you know my life story? How did you get up there and and tell me what I've lived through? And I think this is like a very common thing that a lot of us relate to. And so I've started to sort of make an effort when I'm doing uh, mentoring or when I'm working with 
with new developers or even with developers who are more experienced than I am is I don't, as much as I might want to say, I could never write software like that. You're so smart. I tell them I appreciate how hard they worked on it and that I, I use their gym all the time or that I really appreciated their blog post instead of, you know, telling them that they're smart so that that way they have some like tangible thing to look back at and say, I completed this because I worked hard. So if I come up to a challenge, then I just need to, you know, work harder at it. Sort of something I've been fostering uh, in myself. And it's this talk I've been giving that I really enjoy giving. It's almost like you give people control over their lives and what they accomplish. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. That study by Carol Dweck was a big breakthrough for me. It, it explained a lot of things for me. <laughs> I think it's really important to realize that we all have certain things that we're good at, but invariably, like the people who are piano prodigies, you know, or go out and create some amazing piece of art, it's not the first one. No, and and it's not this automatic thing, you know, it's right. because they put the work in and they practiced and they became good at it. And what you're not seeing is the thousand failures before this one glowing success. Right. And I think Einstein is like a great example of this because we all learned about like Einstein's theory of relativity in school and how he's like this genius. But we don't really talk about how it took him over 10 years of constant diligence of trying to figure this equation out until he got to this theory of relativity. We also don't talk about how his wife had a big role in that part of coming up with this theory of relativity. But we look at people, we see the end product, but we don't see all of these failures that came before it. So it makes it that much more difficult for us to imagine being a success if all we've ever known is failure. So I like to encourage people to start trying to remove the stigma around failure by talking more about their failures. I enjoy listening to talks about people's, you know, newest gym or some amazing thing that they created. But if you were to start talking about like, it took me three years to do this and here's some of the ways that I failed before doing it, then I succeeded. You're automatically like including everyone that's listening to your talk because I guarantee everyone in there has failed at something where they might feel like, oh, well, this person who I've always had on a pedestal, they've always been like a Ruby hero to me or whatever. Now they're much more relatable. And who knows, maybe that person that's in the audience listening to that talk is inspired enough where they are giving that talk next year or something. So that's awesome. It sounds like we're, we're kind of talking a little bit about imposter syndrome, which is something we've talked about on the show before. Mm -hmm. So how do we help people overcome that? So I have this sort of feedback loop that I like to try and enact to help overcome imposter syndrome. It's you first need to praise effort. This is number one. When you praise effort, you let people know that if they can't figure something out, they can ask for help because it's they're not being judged on how smart they are. Nobody feels like they need to be the smartest person in the room. So praising effort is the first thing you need to do. Uh, when you start to praise efforts, what ends up happening is that people are less afraid to expose their ignorance. And um, exposing your ignorance is an apprenticeship pattern from the apprenticeship patterns book that Dave Hoover wrote that I really enjoyed when I was an apprentice. And that was my favorite pattern in it was uh, exposing your ignorance because this is so scary. I remember when I first started my apprenticeship, I was so terrified to ask for help because I thought that if I asked for help, people would be like, why did we hire her? She doesn't know how to do anything. It took me like a week to set up my Ruby environment for the first time because I was too scared to ask how to curl RVM. Like I didn't understand how it worked. 
And so when you start to to praise effort, people start exposing their ignorance. And, and really exposing your ignorance when you realize that it's not about showing people what you don't know. It's more about showing that you have a capacity or a willingness to learn something new. It makes it so much easier to just ask for questions when – to ask for help on questions when you're stuck. And so when you uh, expose your ignorance uh, and everyone that you're working with starts being more comfortable asking for help and exposing their ignorance, it leads to this safe space for people to fail. And when you have a safe space, people can fail. Imposter syndrome sort of doesn't really have as big as an effect because if everyone's allowed to fail and everyone is allowed to learn from their failures, then you're not scared that you're faking how much you know something because that's not even an issue anymore. It's not a question if you can just ask for help if you don't know something. I want to push it back on the people who work with newer folks too. And there's a book I read a while back called QBQ, The Question Behind the Question, talks about personal responsibility. And so, you know, where you're talking about it's your job to, you know, find the answers. It's your job to, you know, you take responsibility for your own direction and for getting that help. But the people on the team also have a responsibility to help people make those transitions and create that safe space for people to explore and learn. And granted, the people who are getting helped are probably gaining more from the experience than the experienced people who are helping them. But it doesn't matter whose fault it is. It doesn't matter who's going to benefit. It's kind of like when, well, I have kids, and I'm going to use an analogy here. My youngest was just potty trained. But before he was potty trained, if something was stinking around the house, it was probably him. Now, I didn't put that there. I didn't make the stinky stuff. But it was my responsibility to clean it up. And sometimes we have people on our teams who are going to have some kind of problem. And even though it's not our problem directly, we have the responsibility to go and help clean it up. And so, or, you know, to go help them. And I think this is a big part in creating these open and safe spaces where we understand that it doesn't matter whose problem it is. It's all of our responsibility to take care of it. I think this applies to the other discussions we were having with marginalized groups too. You know, we didn't make the mess, but we still have a responsibility for the community and for the the environment we're creating. And so I just, I want to encourage people, you know, to take the opportunity to really be involved and to help people out and create these safe spaces at work, you know, at conferences, wherever you're at, for everybody. So that, you know, people can come and get that kind of help and be encouraged to move ahead with what they're trying to accomplish. Yep, absolutely. Megan, one of the stories that you told in your talk was about your first project as a software craftsperson. Can we just mm-hmm. be craftspeople? Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, you said craftswoman in your talk, and I'm like, oh, the gender, why does it matter? Right, <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, but that sounded really frightening. Yes, the, it was. <laughs> the, did you start with providing estimates as a brand new developer who's not even familiar with the tech you were working in? Yes, I did. Yeah, that was a, a a failure in itself. That was a little different than you know a test failure or something. Which that wasn't your. Failure. <laughs> no, it wasn't my failure, but it was an opportunity for my team to examine what went wrong and how we can learn from that. And the conclusion was: don't estimate stories for technologies that you don't know. And <laughs> so, your team have made that first project. Or what did they do to make it a better experience for you? And what advice would you give a team so that new developers don't have that same kind of frightening experience? So 
what we ended up doing, so the technology, it was an iOS application. I didn't have very much experience with iOS. And the only other person on the team who had more experience than I did was the team lead who was on like three different teams. So it was like spread very thin. And so I was working on this, this story and just sort of beating my head against the wall because none of the other people on my team knew anything about it as much as they wanted to help. They just, they couldn't. I couldn't bounce ideas off of them. They didn't know how, they didn't know anything about Objective-C or iOS or Xcode or anything. And so when we had our retroactive and it was obvious that the story wasn't going to be completed, I voiced my concern that I'm flying solo on this story and I'm, you know, not able to complete it and it's frustrating to me. And my team members were frustrated that they couldn't help me. And so the conclusion that we came to is that we were going to, on Fridays, do an iOS workshop. And I led an iOS workshop for them where we got Team Treehouse accounts and I led them through the tutorials and the code examples and answered questions if they had it so that that way they could at least be around to bounce ideas off of or to take smaller parts of the story. So it was really about seeing that this disconnect between they couldn't help me and I was stuck in trying to bridge this happy medium. And that really ended up helping a lot. I left the team and the two women who I had in the workshops were working on iOS stories, uh, a few workshops in. So sort of, uh, we learned from what the mistake was, which was having a team with having a not very well-rounded team as far as the technologies that we knew, and then fixing that by teaching them those technologies. That's interesting. So as a team, you took time to learn the technology that you needed in order to complete your work. Yes. Yep. Speaking of which, you've been a developer for like a year and a half? Um, yeah. Yeah, and a little over a year and a half. How many different languages have you worked in? Quite a few. I think I mean I started with Python and I moved to Ruby and then Java. I've done Clojure and Clojure Script and Elixir, iOS, I'm doing Rails right Ruby and Rails right now, but I've had my feet in quite a few languages. Shoot, wow, you're that's an old pro. <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. That also speaks to what another thing that you talked about, which was how being a technologist anymore, it doesn't mean being an expert in X technology. That's got a time to live, an expiration date on it. Right. It's about being an expert learner. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm much more interested in having the fundamentals of programming down where like breaking down a big problem into small test cases the language at that point doesn't even really matter i can learn the syntax i can learn a new language but if i don't know how to break down a problem it doesn't matter what language i i know how to write if i can break down this problem then i can basically learn any language i want i think that's sort of how i like to approach it you just said break down the problem into small test cases yes i like how you used test cases as the unit of decomposition rather than functionality or services or classes. Yeah. I don't like to think about functionality or services or classes or, you know, what the data model might look like. I want to think about all of the small steps that uh, I need to accomplish to finish this task or this big project or, you know, this, this big story or whatever. And then the implementation just comes afterwards. It, if I can break down the problem, then I can do whatever I want with the implementation. Yeah, if you can define the problem with those small test cases, then the yep. implementation, maybe it's not straightforward, but at least you have a lot of freedom in it. Right, absolutely. I have a question that I want to ask. I haven't been a new developer for a long time, and I don't know what the issues are coming up 
through the ranks to, you know, get to the point where you are, you know, successfully, you know, having a career and participating in the community and all of these things. What what kinds of barriers do people run into at this point as as they come up through the ranks? Are, are there specific experiences that you had that we as more experienced folks can kind of unlock the doors or, you know, give new folks a boost up? So, like I said a little bit ago, it took me a little over a week to get my Ruby environment to a point where I could gym install something. And I think that when I was first starting out and I would want to use some library, the documentation would have all of these assumptions right off the bat. And that was a big obstacle for me. And I know that's been a big obstacle for a lot of newbies that I've helped who something that might seem obvious to us, like how to add something to our path was absolutely impossible for someone who's new to figure out. And that was a a big thing for me was documentation, just making these assumptions. So I think that if we could sort of just assume that people don't have the same level of knowledge that we might have and try to break things down, you know, smaller and say like, if you need to add something to your path, well, what if somebody doesn't know how to do that? So maybe we should also explain how to do that or at least link to a resource that shows you how to do this correctly. I've started doing this with you know, my open source projects, or if I'm, you know, working on a client project, I'll make sure to make the README as thorough as possible. I feel like this is a a really important thing to do. Totally. There's a privilege that we have as experienced developers. And privilege says nothing about how hard your life is or easy. It Mm -hmm. only lists problems you don't have. As experienced developers, we have the privilege of knowing how to set our path, of being comfortable at the command line, of understanding version control. There's so much context that we have that new developers need to be brought up to speed on. Yes. My, my sister wants to learn programming. And she's like, she texts me, I wrote my first program. I'm like, <laughs> oh, good. Where's the repo? The what? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I need to teach you GitHub. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Yeah, and it's it's hard sometimes to do that because it's second nature to us to do that in such a way that it's not where they go back and they go, oh, I didn't know that. There's a parallel here of things are very obvious to us, so obvious we don't even realize that other people don't know them. Mm-hmm. It's like having a bias. We don't realize the problems we don't have. Yep. I think another one besides just tech skills or all of the things that make up a career too, like speaking and participating and giving lightning talks and such. We did um, on the Kundavi podcast, we had Marty Hot talk about conferences and CFPs. And I had so many, you know, newer programmers afterwards say, I didn't even know I could propose a talk. Like I didn't know what a CFP was. And I think that, you know, for me, it's been really helpful to have more experienced people say, hey, did you consider submitting a talk to so-and-so? And, you know, that means a lot because that tells me that, oh, this really experienced person thinks that what I think and what I have to say might actually be valuable. Whereas I don't think that I would think that what I had to say was valuable, if that makes sense. Right. Absolutely. There's this assumption that if we just open, like if conference organizers just open up a CFP to the public and women don't apply or if marginalized people don't apply, it's because they just didn't have anything to say or they didn't want to apply. Exactly. When the reality is that they don't know, they might not know it exists or they might not know what it means or they might not know that they're allowed to apply. And so just simply like reaching out to someone and making a genuine effort. I've had conferences like email me personally and, and put a personal touch on it and say, I went to your website and I really love this blog post that you wrote. I would love if you gave a talk about this at our conference. And that just makes a huge difference in, when it comes to getting different people to apply to your conference. Exactly. Or, and it or really speak does... at your meetup or anything. Right. Or and for it, you your know, job. 
Yep. And it doesn't Absolutely. take much. It can be just an email, a tweet, just a little nudge that says, hey, you know, you've done this awesome thing. You should consider talking about it and sharing it. And that just, you know, even if you don't do it right away, it'll stick with you and you'll think about it. And the next opportunity might be the one where you actually talk. Right. Mm-hmm. And on the flip side of that, I've also had, you know, conferences or, you know, meetups email me to be like, we haven't had any women speak at this conference ever. You should apply to it. And it's like, I, I don't think I want to be the guinea pig for this. <laughs> yeah, we know that. Yeah, it just sounds weird. It sounds weird to me. And I'm not a woman. Yeah. Yeah. On the other hand, I actually respond to those if I can, because I want the attendees, you know, there might be some women in the audience who would be much more encouraged in their career path if I did show up. And I at least respect them for noticing and, and caring Yes, absolutely. I'm just curious with the, the newbie experience, if, if any of you have, have experienced the phenomenon of people making you feel bad for not knowing things. Yes. And I think that this is not usually intentional. And, it's, and it sounds something like, oh, wow, you don't know what that means? And it makes me feel, you know, when I was new and they would say, oh, why wouldn't you just use the tap method here to do this instead? And it's if I knew it existed, then I probably would have used it. And so it's much better to say something like, have you considered using this method and like linking to it? Or this does the same thing that you were looking at that you were trying to do here. Maybe this would be a a better way to do this than just, why didn't you use this? How come you don't know about this? I've had that definitely happen to me when I was new and it made me feel like I needed to learn every Ruby method and know exactly what it did in order to be a successful Ruby developer. Only James Edward Gray has done that. (laughs) Um, I wanted to jump in here too. I listened to this podcast last week. NPR has a podcast called Planet Money and they did this uh, episode when women stopped coding. And it seemed like that was kind of the thing that really started to turn women in particular in this case off but i think it's a common thing for all kinds of new developers in that yeah you know they go and they sign up for a computer science class or something and you know it's the intro class but there's still that expectation that you've spent hours playing with or coding on a computer and so that's what turned them off is that our society and the computer sellers had targeted young men and boys as their target market for computers And so when women or other marginalized groups who didn't have the opportunities to be on the computers in in the 80s and early 90s, you know, when they were starting college, they would come in and they would be treated as, you know, why didn't why don't you know this? You should already know this. And, And there's an actual example in there if you listen to the podcast. And, you know, it turns out that, yeah, what we really need is just content and conversations that are a little more friendly to people who may not know the answer. And it's not just women who will be helped by that. Oh, totally. In this, women are a little bit, the gender balance is a little bit of a barometer of inclusiveness generally, of are we including people with great potential who didn't get opportunities dropped in their lap when they were kids? Mm Mm-hmm. If you all don't mind, I wanted to um, get back to hiring women in other marginalized groups. Earlier, we talked about how you have unintentional biases that you may not be aware of and you don't know. What are some ways to counter that? Like, for example, for CFPs, there's blind reviews, right? You don't even know what the name and the gender or anything is until, you know, at least one or two rounds in. Are there similar things happening with hiring practices that can solve that problem? 
Some of the studies have shown that if you come up ahead of time with a list of qualifications and a list of questions that are going to get you to those qualifications, questions of a resume, questions as an interview, and a list of the kind of answers you're looking for and the kind of answers you're not looking for, when you're really specific upfront, when you define your requirements, the bias is drastically reduced and you wind up with better hiring. Why? Because you know what you want? Yeah, you actually thought about the problem before you went about solving it. Imagine that. <laughs> oh, that was deep. It's almost like creating test cases. Yeah, I'm thinking about the times when I, you know, not specifically for programming roles, but when I worked at startups, I, you know, did some of the interviewing and some of the hiring. And a lot of the process was, yeah, you know, meet with so-and-so employee and what did you think of that person? You know, and that's not very good. <laughs> and that's not, you know, that just introduces so many biases when you're just, you know, how did you feel about that person? Would they be a good fit? Whatever that may mean. And I think that you're right. Thinking through exactly what you're looking for before and doing more of a matching, I guess, of did this person say this thing? Did this person have this specific quality? I'm sure that that goes a long way. Yeah. yeah can we talk a little bit about hiring for culture fit? Yes, please. Let's talk about that. Hiring for cultural fit. Well, it seems like, too, that there's a little bit of the, we talked about it earlier, you know, where it's, you know, we have the kegerator and we work 80 hours and blah, 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 blah. And a lot of people will chalk that up to culture. So, you know. Yeah, you have this discussion. Well, they just didn't seem like they fit into our culture. Well, what does yes. that mean? Mm-hmm. You know, and that's, yeah. God, that, you know, that, that extends across a lot of lines because it yes. also can mean like, you know, this person was a 40-year-old parent Ooh, instead of, or, you know, this person was a Mormon, so he wouldn't drink with me. And right. that felt weird to me. Or we swear a lot here, and they didn't seem comfortable with that. So what should cultural fit mean? Or does it matter at all? Oh, I, I think it matters all. in terms of values, right? Like, I think it matters if, you know... I don't know if if it's a community-based company or organization and you're dedicated to uplifting that community and expanding that community like that's a value that I can see being very important to you doing a really good job versus you know just do you like alcohol like that should that should not be relevant to you doing a good job uh, you know and reaching your potential at that company. Yeah, but it exactly. does affect the it way comes- people get along as far as what their interests are and what they have in common. So, yeah, I mean I think there's some value on both sides. I'm just not sure where the line is. The line comes down to defining your requirements again. What is important to your culture? Is it important that everyone drink? No. Is it important that everyone care about the quality of their work? Yes. To varying degrees in varying companies. What is important to the job that it is a cultural thing? Culture is defined as how we do things around here. And it's important that you hire people who are comfortable with the way you do things around here. If you're constantly pairing, then you need somebody who enjoys that constant interaction. Define your cultural values, and then you can totally base your selection on them. I really like that it comes down to values, just core things that are important. So if my cultural value involves drinking a lot, is that okay? Because that feels like not okay. When you write it down, it's going to look so stupid. And your HR is going to be like, no, no, we, we, we can't support this. <laughs> okay, good. I'm reminded of, of the Mythbusters. I'm a huge Mythbusters fan. And uh, a lot of people, like when they're first watching Mythbusters, they imagine that, you know, clearly this, these two guys, Adam and Jamie, must be great friends, you know, because they work so well together. But all the interviews you read, they'll both say they're not really friends. They don't hang out at all outside of their job. They don't have a lot of stuff in common. 
but they work really well together. And what they'll both say is that they have a tremendous amount of respect for each other's abilities. And they, tr- you know, they, they trust each other with their lives you know, on a lot of the stunts they do. So, you know, there are clearly some shared values there, but there's not an assumption there that they have to be best of friends outside of work. That's a great point. The difference between respect and a casual rapport. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think I've seen this development of an idea in tech that a job should be like your family and that it should be, you know, your best friends. And, you know, I'm not sure that that's the healthiest idea. I'm pretty sure it's not. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) You must have met my family. (laughs) I had an interview recently where the interviewer asked me, before I had even been offered the job or even gone through another part of the interview process, if I was going to promise to be loyal to the company. And this was a huge red flag to me. I think that this notion of loyalty to a company as part of culture is something that I think a lot of people steer away from. I know that there's been a, I think there was an episode on Ruby Rogues about that of loyalty to a company and career changes and whatnot, but they Yeah, I haven't ranted about, about that at that. all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, David Brady wrote a blog post about loyalty and layoffs, and I actually worked with him at that job and got laid off at the same time from that job that kind of brought about some of the conversation and then the rest of it came about from a contract that we actually both worked as well but yeah we did have a conversation about it on the episode or on the show as well and i'll put links in the show notes i'm so So glad you brought that up because um same thing you know i i interviewed recently at a company and i asked them you know what are important values for you you know in an employee and loyalty was the first one and the most important and it frustrated me so much because i'm thinking as a company you're not going to be loyal to me like that's not you know I, you don't owe me anything long term and the idea that i'm supposed to be loyal to you just doesn't make you know it, it's a huge red flag for sure that is so creepy it really is <laughs> so creepy. really is <laughs> well and they they do it in less subtle ways too for example the one job the last full-time job that i had where i worked with david you know, we were basically told, you know, we've never had layoffs and we're going to do everything we can to make sure that we never have to let anyone go. They can't say that anymore. And when it came right down to it, you know, the people who were trying to imply that there was some loyalty to the employees, they didn't have the power to give it. Exactly. Yep. Megan, what values do you appreciate in a company that you're interviewing with? I appreciate when there are clear-cut means of measuring performance as a value of uh, always like helping developers to succeed, whether that is helping them, uh, you know, get to conferences or providing them with materials for learning new things like books and, you know, technologies. I think that these are parts of fostering this environment of expert learners. And to me, that's the most important value is that do you value your developers learning new things instead of just repeating the same year over and over again. And I much would prefer to see that. So when I see job listings that say things like excited to learn new technologies versus excited to play ping pong after work, that I'm going to go and apply at the company who is trying to foster people that are going to keep learning. So what are the red flags? The red flags to me are the ones that are like, we're all a family here because we like to all do the same things together all the time. And I like the people that I work with, but I also don't want work to bleed into my personal life. And it's this really weird line that a lot of us are on because so many of us as developers don't just want to write code in our jobs and then turn it off when we come home. Like I know that like last weekend I participated in the Rails Rumble and 
this isn't really, this is like this weird thing that happens in our community and, you know, as developers where our hobby is also our job. And so this line gets really blurred sometimes between work and personal life. And I feel like when personal life and work start bleeding into each other, that that's just, uh, that's a red flag for me. That's something that I'm not okay with. I want to be able to turn work off when I come home and work on my own stuff versus staying at work really late because they provide dinner and they also provide alcohol and ping pong. So there's like things for us to do. I'd much rather go home after work and, and do my own thing. <laughs> yeah. Do you sense. consider a lack of diversity a red flag? Like if you I, walk in and everyone looks exactly the same, how do you I interpret do. that? I, I do. I've definitely applied at companies who they don't have their team page online for whatever reason. So you don't know who works there. And then you go and you, you get an interview and everyone is a white dude or something. And this to me is like, how am I going to be treated if I come in here? Even if they do hire me, even if they are making an effort to, you know, to be more diverse, I don't want to just be hired because I'm the, the token woman. And I've had people even after an interview meaning it well, say things like, well, you're probably going to get it because you're a woman. And this is like the worst thing wow. to me. Yeah. And so I think that it's not always a red flag. I think that there, especially depends on the size of the company where I'm at right now, I'm the only woman, but there's only six of us. So it's a little different than being the only woman in a company of, you know, 200 people. So yeah, a quick a question about that. Mm -hmm. For the guy who's listening and just took a, a look around the office and went, oh, crap. <laughs> what's, what's, what's the best next move for that company? I think the best next move is to not just try and hire, you know, marginalized people just so that you can sort of throw them up on your team page and, you know, say, look, here, we, we're trying, but to actually put forth a real effort. I know that there are, you know, diversity consultants out there. So if you look around at your company and you're like, I want to do something about this. You shouldn't just want to do the, the least thing that you can do, which is to, to change your job descriptions and, you know, maybe start interviewing women. It should be to invest in this. And I know like Ash Dryden, who's been on the show before, who I'm sure many people know, she does diversity consulting with businesses and conferences to help you come up with an action plan for not just hiring, but for retaining and for, you know, making the working conditions acceptable for everyone. I feel like this is a really important thing companies can do is to really invest in it if you care about it. I don't and by invest, we don't mean donate money to pipeline right. programs. Absolutely. Pipeline programs, you mean like RailsBridge or Girls Who Code or yes. things like that? Okay. I mean, yeah. yes, do that, but also prepare an environment where the women coming out of those programs are going to want to stay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing that's really frustrating to me about this is that I think almost everyone can get on board with these pipeline programs because they really don't require us to do much internal examination of our, our biases because we just donate money to Girls Who Code. And don't we feel good about you know getting technology into the hands of, of young women? But if we're not actively like creating a place for them, then we're putting down train tracks to a cliff. Like we're not creating a bridge for them to get over it. And this is frustrating because I've seen like, you know, these billion dollar net worth like startup investors who are like, oh, I can throw $50,000 at Girls Who Code and have a parade thrown for me. But I, you look at their portfolio and they're never investing in women or marginalized people. And there's this disconnect here that doesn't make sense how you can invest in, you know, young kids, but then maybe think that the responsibility is on someone else later down the road when there's already women in the field and there's already women in technology. 
who are leaving because they don't feel welcome or because they're being harassed. And so we need to do something about that now for the women who are in here so that we can prepare a place for the young girls and, you know, the, the marginalized kids that we're trying to get into it and to technology, get them through the pipeline and, you know, not blame them when they fall out of it inevitably because it's, you know, leaky and full of acid and sewer rats and whatnot. Yeah. And it's not just about women. I mean, women are the easiest group to talk about, but there's people of in between gender, there's people of color and so many other groups that mm -hmm. are excluded that aren't as visible, that don't have even as much of a voice as we do. Right. And when you consciously are careful with your job descriptions, you're careful with your interviews, you think consciously about the values your company has or no, the values your company wants to have and how you're going to get there to where you actually espouse those. Mm -hmm. You include so many more people and groups and ideas, and you tell the people who already work at your company, hey, you don't need to be all the same. You don't have to just fit in all the time. You can bring your own quirkiness and your own interests that nobody else has and your own diversity of ideas. Yep. If I were that guy, you know, in looking around and saying, oh crap, I'd also wonder how that happened. Like I would look internally and say, do we have a personal pipeline problem? How did we reach all these people? And for, you know, a lot of smaller companies and startups, the answer is, well, I just reached out to my network and my network all looks the same, which again, is a very, very solvable problem. Diversify your network, make your own, you know, personal pipeline so that when it comes to starting a company or hiring or, you know, getting your first hundred employees, you have a great setup already and you can get diversity without even really trying because it's, you know, it's built for you. So I look internally and just say, you know, what happened or what didn't happen where we ended up here. Absolutely. So, so one thing I want to talk a little bit about here too is just, and, and this is another question. And that is that it seems like when the conversation turns to marginalized groups, a lot of times people in the majority or who aren't part of the particular marginalized group that's being talked about anyway, they feel threatened or they feel uncomfortable talking about it. You know, how do we make it so that they don't feel threatened about it and instead see an opportunity there? I think that it's normal to... I know I've seen this on Twitter, people who want to talk about this, who feel like they're not allowed to when they say things. I can't talk about this without being attacked. And I think that this is a kind of a line that people walk of speaking over and speaking for versus like advocating for. And so I think it's important to not try and amplify your own voice when you want to talk about these things, but to, uh, it's as simple as, you know, retweeting somebody else or Kronda has an, a, a great Twitter list of people to follow if you need to diversify your network to help amplify those voices. Any other suggestions? So does it basically boil down to listening and talking to the right folks? Yeah. I mean, I think mostly like, listening. Yeah. Mostly <laughs> listening. Right. Yeah. It's mostly about listening and then also realizing that you're going to make mistakes. I make mistakes every day on, you know, on Twitter or whatever. I see feminists and, and, you know, social justice people that I really admire having to apologize for something because there's no point where you reach where you're like, I've learned everything I can learn about this and now I have unpacked all of my privilege and I'm not sexist anymore. I'm not racist anymore. I'm not homophobic or transphobic or any of these things. It's always going to happen. And so in order to not feel like 
it's dangerous to speak about these things or I'm going to be called out for speaking about them. It's just sort of, it might happen. You might make a mistake. You might mess up. But realize when people do call you out for these things, they're not doing it because they're trying to make you feel bad or harass you or any of these things. They're trying to just let you know. When I call somebody out, I do it because I, I care about them. I don't waste my time calling out people that I think genuinely don't want to make a, an effort to be better. I'm not going to spend time calling out the the people who are in my timeline or in my mentions who are obviously just trying to get a rise out of me. But if it's somebody that I know is making a genuine effort and I call you out or if you if you misstep, it's not because I'm I don't think that you're a good person or I'm, you know, trying to make you feel bad. It's because I genuinely care about you and I want you to move in the right direction and, you know, and have you apologize and we move forward. Also, something that, that I've had to learn more about and understand better is that it is always nice to have somebody who is in a marginalized group and can explain things to you, you know, and can help you through this process. But it isn't really their responsibility in the end. You know, they don't have to be there for you. And a lot of people are, you know, depending on their circumstances, they may be dealing with constant stress, you know, from hate and discrimination and stuff like that. You know, and it's not really their responsibility in the end to put that stress aside and be nice to you so that you can you, you can learn more. I mean, it's, it's wonderful. I, you know, I'm incredibly grateful to the people in my life who are willing to sort of walk me through stuff. But I have to also recognize that they don't have to, you know, and I, I can't expect them to. Right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I've noticed this is that people, you know, a lot of people have really great intentions. They just don't know where to get started. They want to know more about why someone feels a certain way, but they know that they shouldn't be asking to be educated for free on this or for somebody to take time out of their day to explain why this certain microaggression is dehumanizing. And especially when that person has heard it, you know, hundreds and thousands of times. And so I've, I've actually, after a, some sexist incident that happened in tech. I don't even remember which one it was because there's so many of them. I created a website called Days Since Last Tech Incident. And it's like a play on when you're in like a factory and they have this sign up. And it's like, it's been zero days since there's been an incident or whatever. It's just statically coded to, it's been zero days since there's been an incident in tech. (laughs) But um, I also included a bunch of resources for people who want to learn more about how to sort of fix the toxic culture, as well as linking to a bunch of people who are working on fixing the toxic culture so that you can support them, whether that's looking out for them and being their their tank, so to speak, when they're dealing with abuse or harassment, or just, you know, funding them. There's lots of women and lots of marginalized people who they don't get the funding that they need for things. And so I feel like we can sort of help them with that and sort of pick that up for them, like on I think it's Patreon or whatever websites they might be on for funding for their projects or whatnot. So I have this website that has a bunch of resources on it and a bunch of people who are working on fixing the culture. So I feel like I I like to link to this when people ask me to be educated on something. So I just was tired of linking to all of these websites. So I just curated them all and put them online. Very cool. We'll get a link to that in the show notes as well. You brought up the harassment and some of the other, you know, I mean, it seems like some of the incidents are, you know, they're kind of result of the toxic culture. And then we have the occasional, very public, you know, somebody did something horrible to somebody else. We're, we're actually dealing with some of this right now where with Gamergate, I don't know if I, I wasn't sure if I wanted to bring it up, but, <laughs> you know, where people are receiving death threats and rape threats. And I mean, you know, just stuff that's totally sickening. Are there things that we can do to make that better? I mean, I see Brianna Wu fighting back, and I, I totally admire her for that. And But, you know, I'm sitting here. She's in 
Texas or wherever she lives. And I, you know, I, I feel, I feel terrible about what's going on, but I don't really know if there's anything that we can do to make the situation better there or, you know, to help them fight the, you know, the people who are just totally out of control. Yeah. So I think like what I just said, being a tank for someone, taking the damage for them, like when you're in a position of privilege, then you have the ability to to sort of take more of this damage, so to speak, and to, to sort of redirect the attention onto yourself. Just there's this phenomenon of when men call out other men, the men who get called out respect that more than if a woman calls them out for it. I saw related to Gamergate, somebody was one of the... Uh, the members of the movement or whatever was he, he emailed somebody and sent them like death and rape threats thinking that they were a woman. And they responded and they said, I'm not a woman. I'm a man. They apologized for it. And they said, I'm so sorry. I wouldn't have sent them to you if I would have known that you were a man, even though he opposed it. So by having this like ability to be in this position of privilege, you can sort of divert that attention a little bit, I think. In person, in small ways, it means anytime you hear a rape joke or a sexist remark, especially when there's not a woman around, say, that's not cool. Yep. Mm -hmm. A thousand million that not cools can change the culture. Absolutely. So why aren't online threats taken seriously? Like That just sounds so insane to me that it's I don't want to say normal, but almost normal and expected that people threaten, you know, and, and, and rape threats and death threats online. And it's just, well, that's online. It doesn't really mean anything. How is that just okay? Like we're supposed to walk away from the internet and still be a developer? Right. That doesn't work. <laughs> I yes. don't understand. Like, where does that come from? Whose job is it to, you know, fix that? Like, you know, Twitter's gotten a lot of flack for not taking, you know, abuse reports or, you know, any of that very seriously and not doing anything. So I don't know, is it Twitter's responsibility? Is it like who needs to take this more seriously so that this is taken seriously? I mean, it's all that's not cool to an anonymous troll. Yeah, like, exactly. I think that well, when we look at like, for example, like, Twitter released their numbers, right on their diversity and their company. And we see it started to make sense why this was happening. Because there were so few women that worked there. And so this was never a huge concern for them. Like security only meant, could you make your account private or could you make it public? It never meant stopping harassment because that was never an issue. There's a study about uh, these two, like these bots that people have made. Uh, some of them were like feminine named and some of them were masculine named. And what they found was that the feminine named bots received 100 times like per minute or something crazy, the amount of uh, like threats and sexual harassment than the male bots did, which I feel like there was like a collective from all the women on the internet. Yeah, we've been telling you this forever. And, you know, it's sort of a shame you had to create fake, you know, bots to, to actually understand this. But when you don't have this diverse team, when you don't have different experiences and different like problems that people want to solve coming to the table, then these things get thrown to the back burner. And, you know, Twitter is trying to implement new ways to put content in our feeds that we might be interested in versus removing the content that we don't want to see, which is a huge thing that so many people want. And so it's, it's really, it comes down to, at least in like for like tech companies that are not combating harassment the right way, we look at their team makeup and it starts to sort of make sense. So when we start having more diverse teams, we can start solving these problems and cut them off right before we even need to go to the police because, you know, the police, they don't care about, you know, Twitter harassment or anything. So 
Now, this is a social problem, and we need social pressures and laws, but you can't count on the legal system when it's so spread out and diverse. We have and to it's have always going to lag, too. Mm-hmm. We have to have a lot of spread out people attacking the problem and, mm-hmm. and changing the culture of our spaces. Yep. Yeah, if, and I think a lot of it also has to do with, I don't attack people I don't know, because first off, I, I don't want to do that, but I also... I feel empathy for these people because I know people from these different walks of lives. And when you don't expand your worldview, when you don't have a diverse network, when you make sure that the only people that you surround yourself are people who look like you and have the same experiences as you, it really, it doesn't feel like you're attacking a person when you do these things, especially online. A lot of people think that, you know, there's a huge difference between, you know, in real life and online, but that's really not the case, especially when, we have, you know, computers in our pockets because of our cell phones. Like, online is the real world. And when we don't view these people as real people, and when we don't view, you know, the internet as a real, a real space that real people are on, then it becomes super easy to send threats because it doesn't feel like there's a consequence for them. And by and large, there really isn't a consequence for them. I really feel like most of the people who say that online threats aren't real threats, you know, shouldn't have a big you should just brush them off. I feel like most people have never experienced a, you know, a focused campaign of harassment. Absolutely. I think and right, because it's not just one threat. It's the right. environment. It's the building up of all of them that everyone makes all of the others worse. Yep. And I mean, Kathy Sierra, like her blog post that she had recently when she decided that she didn't want to, you know, be online anymore because of all the harassment and like this isn't the first time that she's had to do this because of campaigns of sustained harassment. This isn't even a unique story to tech or even to like the internet at large. And there's a, there's a big difference between, and I've received, you know, threats from, I wish you were dead, which, you know, that, that doesn't seem like, that's just doesn't seem like there's really much consequence to that. But when you get that all the time, it wears down on you. And then when somebody finally figures out, I know where you live, then that's when it gets really scary. And that's, it's, it's, upsetting that that's like the point that it has to get to before you know people care about it you should care about it from the beginning i remember reading an article and it may have been from um kathy sierra but it was someone who got a ton of, of death threats and rape threats and the part that troubled me almost more than just the receiving of these threats was the fact that she had to document all of them as like potential evidence in case something actually happened so it's like not only do you get these emails and these tweets but then you have to like read them and file them away and date them and make sure that you have like you know an organized you know account of exactly what happened because in case the police comes you can say oh you know this is the proof that this was probably going to happen like that must be just incredibly emotionally exhausting people don't believe it yeah where people are like oh no you you must be making that up what? Why would I spend my time on that? Why yeah. would anyone <laughs> spend their time on that? But I can almost understand because the alternative is recognizing that the world is a much less pretty place than we want it to be. I'm in yep. St. Louis and Ferguson is very close to here. And as part of reading the news about that, and I've been diversifying my Twitter feed since then, it's painful to recognize how much privilege I have as a white person in St. Louis. And that the world is just way less fair than I thought it was. Yep, absolutely. I think that, I wish I knew who said this. There was this, people 
want to think that the world is always fair and just. And so they just cut out voices of people who, you know, say something that disagrees with their worldview. So that is a, a huge part of unpacking your privileges, like realizing it's going to be painful and it's going to suck and you're going to look around you and you're going to see inequalities all the time. And that's just a small peek into what somebody, a person of color or a, tra- or a transgender person, like what they go through, just because you can turn it off at any time that you want and they really can't do that. And so that's a huge part of unpacking your privilege and and being more empathetic and diversifying your network. It is. And on the flip side, the people at the top, I think of Satya Nadella, who issued a very good apology, but when he mentioned at Grace Hopper that people should trust the system, well, that's because the system worked for him. But it didn't work for a lot of people who maybe had the same potential and maybe worked equally hard, but just didn't get as lucky. Right. There's a survivor bias in that. You're talking about when um, when he told women that they shouldn't ask for a raise and just trust that they'll be fairly compensated? Right. The people yeah. at the top trust the system because the system worked for them. Right. Anything else we should explore on uh, the topic of, you know, enabling people, you know, new developers or marginalized groups before we get into the picks? Yeah, I had one more, actually. Did either of you or did any of you attend um, Grace Hopper Conference? I didn't myself, but... No. No, no I didn't. But you heard about the male ally panel? Oh, yes. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm not really sure how to explain this. So what I understand, and I wasn't there myself, I just, you know, saw the, the tweets and the recap. My understanding is that there were, I think it was maybe four men, um, and they had a male ally panel. Apparently, it was the only session that wasn't actually live streamed. Everything else about the conference was live streamed. And it didn't really go very well. It sounded like the male allies were pretty much telling the women that it's their job to speak up and to be vocal and to stand up for themselves. And (laughs) there was a a male ally panel bingo that was... shared uh, uh, yes. and every and someone actually called bingo because it was like a list of you know stereotypical things that you know male allies that are not actually your allies would say and they said a lot of those things does that about cover it yes <laughs> yeah i did hear after that panel because it did not go so well as many people expected that i think three of the four men said that they were going to be doing a new panel where women could talk to them and they would just listen. They weren't going to say a single word. I think that one went over a lot better and they walked away actually listening and learning something versus, you know, being centered in the conversation, which was what the male ally panel really did was center uh, these lines of thoughts that people have already heard time and time again about, you know, just lean in harder and then eventually you'll make it. Right. And that was, I guess, the, the ironic part about it is, you know, it's four men on a stage telling thousands of women that they should speak up and be vocal when they're the ones with the mic. And yeah. then the fact that it wasn't live streamed and then the fact that there was no Q&A. The women couldn't, you know, say, well, what are you doing at your company? Like, there, there was no, there, there was it no, really was not a conversation. Right. And there was no, you know, accountability or anything like yes. the, like the CEO of GoDaddy was one of the male allies. Oh, geez. And, 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 and granted, <laughs> the new a, CEO, the new CEO, granted, he has done, you know, he has done things to improve the image, but the image is already so damaged that it's really difficult, especially when you're not willing to. Uh, to take accountability and, you know, have people ask you questions afterwards or even to just, you know, sit in the audience and listen, that it, it just, it really comes across poorly. And to say things like, well, I know what it's like to be a woman because I have a, I have a daughter or, you know, I have a sister <laughs> or a mom or something. <laughs> 
you brought accountability back in in the form of listening. And that's interesting because accountability, I think that applies that accountability is about listening to other people and taking their opinions as just as important as your own. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that a really important thing to do is to just believe people when they tell you something. Oh, yes. Uh, there's this notion and this idea that's sort of perpetuated because of like culture and movies and TV all the way back to, you know, religious text of that women are, you know, not to be trusted. And this plays out even if you have friends who are women or even if you are a woman where when a woman tells you something, you don't believe it. So just take women at their word. If they're coming forward and they're saying, I was harassed at this conference, they were harassed at that conference because nobody gets popular. Nobody gets any advances in life for claiming to be harassed at a conference. So nobody's going to do it to just because uh, it's the cool thing to do or it's they're doing it because they're genuinely trying to come forward with this terrible thing that happened to them. So just believing people at their word and taking that knowledge and altering your worldview is so important as, uh, as part of being an accountable person. Altering your worldview, that's a big one. It's really sad that the male ally panel was such a disaster because we do need male allies. But as you said, Megan, we don't need them to speak for us. Right. We need them to listen, to believe us, to amplify our voices, right. and, and to defend us from attacks. Right. And the thing about the male allies panel that was just, it seems so weird, was it was at Grace Hopper conference, which is a conference that has, you know, it was like 4,000 women and like 800 men. But women don't need to be told how great these male allies are. Why these panels should be at conferences that are mostly men, I think. I think that it's yes. great to have a male allies panel, but have them talk to other men about how to be male allies. Oh, yes. and also please get some women on the stage at those conferences. Yeah, and not just the, <laughs> not just the panelists uh, asking the male allies questions. When you talk about um, believing women and, and, and you know, believing their stories, you know, I was on a train, I think a couple of months ago, and it was late at night, and I was in, like, you know, the, the part in between the cars where there's, like, a little bit of standing room, and I was there, and it was, like, a bunch of guys, I think maybe, like, 10 guys packed in there, they were all drunk, they were all being very rowdy, and I just instantly felt incredibly unsafe, just incredibly unsafe. And I was terrified. And, you know, nothing happened. It was, you know, I got off my stop and everything was fine. But later on, I tried explaining how I felt to, you know, a, a male friend. And he just refused to acknowledge that fear. He just couldn't wrap his mind around the idea that I felt unsafe as a woman surrounded by, like, drunk, you know, cursing angry men and for him it was no it's fine you could have just went to a different car or you could have just called for help or you know you would have been fine and he just couldn't understand that fear because he'd never experienced it and that's probably one of the most frustrating things about trying to explain your perspective because if someone doesn't get that and doesn't connect with it on an emotional level it's really hard to convince them so just believe us like if we're scared we're actually scared we're not making it up um, and and trust our feelings and trust our perspective and take it seriously Absolutely. Believe us even when you cannot empathize because you can't imagine being in that position. Yes, exactly. Avdi, you actually wrote a blog post recently about being catcalled, which you have no idea how much I appreciated that. I appreciate that so much because that happens, you know, to women all the time, happens to me. And I always think to myself, man, I wonder if a guy would ever understand how it feels to be terrified in this situation. And mm -hmm. I just really appreciated that, like, you understood, <laughs> like, you, you got it. And I don't know if you want to tell that story, but I, I really appreciated that post. Yeah, I mean, there's not much to tell. I just, I have an odd history of experiencing a very tiny slice of what women experience there in various contexts. 
And I guess, I, yeah, you know, I can put the, the link in the show notes. So I'm not going to go over all of it now, but it is a little scary. You know, you don't know what the intentions of the person doing that are. You don't know how, you know, how balanced or unbalanced they are. And, you know, and for other reasons as well, it's not a comfortable feeling. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's the know. same with online I would harassment. not want to live my life, you know, dealing with that kind of crap every freaking day. Yep. I mean, and, and that was something I was thinking a moment ago when you were talking about nobody her- reports harassment, you know, for fun, for funsies, you know, for attention or something like that. And it seems cr- kind of crazy to even imagine that somebody would. But, you know, if, if you ever feel like if you're a dude and you ever feel like like maybe women report harassment for fun, you know, I, I kind of invite you to walk through mentally, you know, in your process, in your mind, the process of going online and describing somebody molest you. And imagine, you know, is that really like something you would do for funsies and attention? Yeah. <laughs> There's a great art exhibit. I'll find the link to it where an artist wanted to portray what it is like to be a woman online. So she created an office that is entirely papered with the kind of negative, hateful statements that women see online all the time. And it's very powerful. Everywhere you look, there's negativity, there's hate, there's I wish you were dead. And in some spaces, you you just never know when you go online if you're going to see something like that. And it's debilitating. It's a very powerful exhibit. Yes. Wow. Yeah, I, I spend a, a a day or two bummed out if one person says something na- nasty to me on IRC. This actually just happened. Um, <laughs> oh, no. Um, and, Does and anyone really tell you to get a thicker skin for that? Of course. Of course. This is like, I mean, you know, this is this is tech and we're all badasses here and, and other such horse crap. Uh, you know, I get bummed out if I get one little thing and... You know, and I'm incredibly lucky. I don't get a lot of hate online. I get very little. Me too. But there's, I mean, I think everybody, everybody who's ever experienced any kind of criticism understands the phenomenon that, you know, one piece of negativity, one piece of hate, one piece of just, you know, random, random hate that you can rationally look at it and say, this person is just a jerk and I shouldn't pay them any attention at all. That one thing outweighs or can, you know, at least equal the weight of 10 nice things that people say. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yep. So that's another thing you can do as a man. If you do have some women that you work with or that you run into at user groups, say something nice about our work. Yes. Not our appearance, please. Yeah. I I thought you were going to say, say something nice. And I was about to say, yeah, you might want to qualify that. And also, (laughs) also don't say something like I've heard this. It's so impressive that you're a woman in technology like that. I know what you're going for there, but that has the opposite effect on me. It makes me feel very othered. I just want to be a good programmer. I don't need the qualifier. Yeah. I've also started trying to use the neutral pronoun they as often as possible. Yes. Yeah. But that being said, I mean, seeing and understanding some of the things that women go through in tech, I really do admire women in tech. And if you know one of us really well, that's a totally awesome thing to say in private, but not at the user group. Yeah. Right. Not yeah. from a stranger. <laughs> no, totally. I, I get that. Yes. Kat Hogan has a wonderful post about tiny little things that men can do to start changing the culture around to make people of all genders feel more welcome. And it's also a beautiful post. We'll link it, of course, because it's got links to everything. So it kind of explains the overall situation and you can drill down as far as you want. But they're little bitty things like use people instead of guys. Mm -hmm. 
Megan, you, you linked to this post. Yes. Yeah, I love this post. This is the ways men in tech are unintentionally sexist? Yes. Right. Yeah. Which is kind of yeah. an unfortunate title because it's actually an incredibly constructive post of just little things that everyone can do. Right. And it's, and it's from a few weeks ago. And it's not just ways that men in tech are unintentionally sexist. It's it's ways that we all are unintentionally sexist. I know I that totally use I know I, I'm I'm guilty of so many of these things. Me too. Yeah. And it's not even in tech, it's really just in life. Yeah. It's ways people in life are intentionally sexist. Totally. Uh, and we only talk about, well, personally, I only talk about this in tech because that's like the one community I have feel like I have some hope of influencing. Mhm. Yep. So I want to bring this up. Some friends of mine run a conference, and I'm not going to go into which conference, but they, because one of the things in here just kind of reminded me of this. You know, they they set aside a bunch of tickets. The tickets were exceptionally hard to get. They sold out very quickly for their conference. And so they set aside reserved section of tickets for women, and they unfortunately called them girls' tickets, and they got massacred online for calling them girls' tickets you know, where in reality they were really trying to be inclusive. You know, how do we deal with things like that where ultimately instead of them being educated, they were attacked? I think this starts at who was the people who were organizing the conference. The fact that, you know, girls' tickets or whatever got out and that was something that they said in public that this is what this was called, that sort of tells me that they didn't consult any women or they don't know any women to know that this might not be appropriate. But these things are going to happen. And so... First thing to do is to apologize for it when people are rightfully, you know, put off by it or upset by it and, and change it. Don't call them, you know, girls tickets anymore. And then in the future, moving forward, um, if you put on another conference is to reach out to women and to ask for their opinions on things of women, not women that you don't know, because this is, again, falling in line of educate me for free, but Actually diversify your network, make friends with women, and value their opinions on things and get their opinions on things. Maybe have women, a women, uh, some women or marginalized, otherwise marginalized people on the board that's creating the conference to avoid these things from even, you know, happening at all. This but might also be a place where a few hundred dollars worth of diversity consulting could save you a lot of grief. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, it just it seems like people get attacked for being ignorant and I'm not condoning what they're the ignorance, but at the same time it doesn't always seem entirely fair either. So I feel like at this point with especially like in the Ruby community, uh the conversations that people are having and you know, I feel like more and more people are aware of this where claiming ignorance is almost I feel like maybe not even acceptable. Yeah. There's so many resources out there like you know, like callback women and geek feminism that in like, you know, like I said earlier, like Ash Dryden, who does diversity consulting, even for conferences, she's put on so many diverse conferences that there's so many resources available that just saying, oh, we didn't know any better. It's not really even an excuse that should be acceptable anymore. Yeah. Dare I say that this conference wasn't a Ruby or even related to Ruby conference. So, so, you know, that community is a little less aware, but yeah, it makes sense. And I, you know, like I said, I'm not saying it was, you know, it was okay to call it girls' tickets, but I just I thought it was interesting. And you also used the word this fair. This doesn't seem fair. The whole point is yes, the world is I not fair. <laughs> and now and then, oh my gosh, now and then it's not fair to white men. Yeah. 
Also, I just want to say that I Googled just now how to get more women at tech conferences, and there are a ton of really great ideas. And yeah. I feel like if you just read one of them, you would know that girl tickets is a bad idea. At least call them women tickets, you know, like yeah. that's a step up. But, but even yeah. then, why focus on just women? Strange Loop did it beautifully this oh, year. Oh, yeah. They had diversity, not just tickets, but diversity scholarships. And they got companies to sponsor and pay for it. And they were able to bring a lot of people of various minority groups who would never have been able to attend the conference otherwise. And oh my gosh, that conference felt so good this year. I heard great things about it. I had two former coworkers both get diversity scholarships and it included like their plane ticket and like their, their conference ticket and also like their hotel. So it was, they really wanted to make an effort to diversify their conference and they knew what they had to do to do it. And they, they executed it very well. Right. And it wasn't, hey, look, this opportunity is out there. If you don't take it, it's your problem. It's what can we do to make this possible for you personally as an individual? Yes. Yeah. And so I guess I'm, from the perspective of, you know, ignorance not being a good excuse, if you have no idea where to start, if you, you know, just don't know where to begin, literally, if you Google search your goal, there are so many clear resources of things that you can do. And they're all going to be better than girl tickets. Yeah. Yes. So, well, and also, you know, get comfortable with saying that was dumb. Yes. I'm sorry. That was dumb. <laughs> I mean, and, and you know, what's, what's weird to me, and, and I, I feel this, you know, in my own reactions as well, is that as hackers, like, I'm pretty, f I, I feel like hackers are usually pretty good about saying, saying like, that was dumb. Like, the, the dynamic that I usually observe is somebody is like, yeah, you should, like, you should do it this way. You should do it this way. And somebody like shows them a counterexample and they're like, wow, that was totally dumb. I can't believe I ever said you should do it that way. I was completely wrong. You know, it, we, the strong opinions loosely held is the, is the phrase that I hear. And, and I think in general, it's a, it's a pretty decent pattern. And it's weird how we don't do that when it comes to stuff like, you know, the decisions we make when organizing a conference. It's a lot um, easier to be wrong in tech than to be wrong in personal skills. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, and what happens yeah. is that it's, it's like, I, I think everyone's terrified of appearing to be a bad person or, a, you know, having their intent mis believing that their intent was misread and stuff like that. It's, it's always, you know, very scary to have that happen. And, and people feel like, well, if they make a mistake in tech, it's just a mistake in tech. But if they make a mistake in organizing something, then it makes them a bad person. But, you know, I would, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's important to just, you know, basically use the same strategy that you would with, a, with tech mistakes. Get comfortable with saying, huh, that was dumb. I should have done something different. Yep, absolutely. One last question that I want to ask, and that is, I talk to other conference organizers of other conferences. Most of them are in the Ruby community, but some of them are not. And it seems like one of the tactics for making the conference feel more inclusive is to go out and invite speakers who are in these marginalized groups. And, you know, you so you find people who are going to give an incredible talk who also, you know, meet those cross-sections of diversity. How does that line up? Because before it sounded like, you know, it's not necessarily cool to invite somebody because they are in the marginalized group. Is there a good middle ground there? Or There's is it, a difference is it just between... not going to them and saying, we need a woman or we need a black person or whatever? Okay, two things. One, as Megan said and Sarone said, make it personal. Yes. Make it about we want you to speak, not about we want a woman to speak. And I can tell the difference between when you invited me to your conference like seven months before it, and when you invited <laughs> me to submit like the day before the CFP closed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And honestly, I respect both, um, but it, yeah, it shows. Mm -hmm. All right. 
If you just diversify your network and you watch talks of people who don't all look like you, you're going to find really amazing talks and you're going to find really, you know, not great talks. This is the same with any group of people. And so you just have to like be proactive about looking for other people who don't look like you. And you don't want to ask someone to speak at your conference or, you know, have them speak at your conference solely because they fall into this marginalized group and this is this quota that you've set for yourself. You want to invite them because they're a really great speaker and they have something to add because it's really obvious, like we've said, especially like at a conference when you're speaking in, it feels like you don't belong there. So yeah, just being personal about it, actually diversifying your network and inviting people not just to fill a quota, but because you appreciate the work that they do and that you appreciate the talks that they give. Right. Filling a quota with random people of color and women, that doesn't help you. But consciously making an effort to look outside your network or broaden your network and look for people who don't look like everybody else, that's totally different. That is overcoming and compensating for your bias. Mm -hmm. Yep. It's not unfair at all. Right. Awesome. Well, I think I'm done exposing my ignorance and my biases. (laughs) Uh, Let's go ahead and do some picks. Avdi, do you want to start us off with the picks? Again? Oh, sure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right. I'll, I'll start with a one programming thing I have, uh, which is I just today read a great blog post by Ernie Miller. And I, I love it when I come across an article that teaches me something new about Ruby. And I learned something new about Ruby today. He talks about how he chooses between the alias keyword and the alias method, the uh, method. And I learned some things about how those two work that I didn't know before. So it's also really just a fun read. It's kind of funny. So great blog post on that. The other two things I'm going to pick are just tumblers that have been cracking me up lately. So one of them is the uh, worst cats tumbler. Uh, <laughs> it is a tumbler about the worst cat. And another one is called It's Like They Know Us. And if you are a parent, I would suggest not reading this while drinking anything. <laughs> Because it'll probably wind up on your screen. It's it's a little Tumblr about all those generic stock photos of impeccable, perfect families doing things like sitting on pure white couches and feeding their toddlers. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I'll just leave it at that. Those are my picks. Awesome. Jessica, what are your picks? I have a pick. It's a blog post by Brandon Hayes. And it's about tribes and communities in open source. It's really a beautiful blog post about life and about open source and how to be part of something bigger than you while retaining an individual identity. That's my only pick this week. Awesome. Saran, what are your picks? Got a few kind of going on today's topic. The first one is called How I Discovered Gender Discrimination. It's a blog post. It's a really interesting story about a guy named Leslie and how he was trying to find a job and his name is Leslie. So people, you know, assumed that, that he was a woman and he, you know, despite his, uh, his experience and, and his, you know, resume, he didn't really get any interviews and he was very confused and frustrated by that. And so he decided to put a Mr in front of his name on that resume and all of a sudden he got lots of interviews and he kind of talks about um, his experience and how he discovered gender discrimination it's really fascinating and kind of a sad story but you know one small way that a guy can you know be mistaken for a woman and that's not necessarily a good thing the second is a blog post by felicia day called the only thing i have to say about gamergate and it's the only thing she has to say about Gamergate. And it's just, it's really sad, but very deep and poignant. And she talks about her worst fears and how she's this prolific, you know, 
actress and, and geek icon and despite her status how terrified she is to speak about Gamergate in you know how she hasn't done so because of her fear and of course as soon as she blogged about this then she got a tons of um, discrimination and lots of threats and, and I think she's also doxxed uh, recently so definitely take a read at that and then my final one is more fun it's a YouTube video called Tesla from Electricity and it's this really really cool art project where this guy I'm not exactly sure what the material is that he's using but it looks like he's burning paper or, or some cardboard or something and he's burning it and making the image of Tesla literally using like electricity to burn the the paper and it looks really really cool and it's really well done so check that out that's all I got all right I've got a, another couple of picks one of them is another podcast episode it's this American life and I'm trying to remember which episode it was, but they were talking about disciplining kids and uh, they were talking about, again, it was kids in uh, education and they were, anyway, there was a mom, I think it was This American Life, I'm trying to find the episode and I'll put a link in the show notes, but there was a mom who was talking about how her child, who was a, a child of color, kept getting suspended from the preschool that he went to. And then she went to a party, birthday party or something, and was talking to some of the other parents. And it turned out that her child wasn't the only one misbehaving. Her child was just the only one that was getting suspended. And, and then there were, I believe they went into some other discussions. Yeah, it, it is this, this American life. But there were some other discussions about how they approach these different groups of kids and, and how they uh, moved up in the world. Um, from that. And I, I just thought it was really interesting, um, kind of challenged the way I think about some of these things a little bit. So I'm going to put that in the show notes. And yeah, I think that's really the only pick I have this week. I, I do want to point out that I am doing some webinars. If you're interested in writing mobile apps in JavaScript, uh, we're doing a roundtable on November 5th in the afternoon. And if you're interested in learning about Rails 4.2, if you text, we're doing a webinar for that on November 6th. We had to move it. It was going to be next week, but that just didn't work out for Eileen and Jeremy. So Eileen Yushatel, who was on the show not too long ago, and Jeremy Kemper are going to be coming on and talking about that. If you want to learn more about the mobile development in JavaScript, you can text MobileJS to 38470. And if you want to learn more about Rails too, you can text Rails to 38470. And you can learn more about that. So anyway, that's what I've got going on. Megan, what are your picks? Okay, so I have a, three picks. The first is an open source project that a former coworker and friend of mine, uh, Latoya Allen, created. It's called Pass Ruby, and I'll link to it, obviously. But um, it's for people who might have done the Ruby Cohen's but aren't quite sure how to, you know, sort of put it all together. So it's a mixture of data structures and techniques that you can practice in tandem while still keeping everything sort of beginner friendly. So if you've done the cones, it'll feel really familiar to you. She uses like guard to run the test and you it's very similar to like exorcism with there's a, a test suite and then you have to make the test pass, but it's done to sort of teach you data structures and also the the techniques that you learned in the Ruby cones at the same time. But it's a it's a new open source project and she's looking for contributions from uh, beginners. So if you're a beginner or if you just have never contributed to open source and you're interested, she's very interested in that. And then I also have a couple of talks from Madison Ruby. I went to Madison Ruby this year and it was amazing. But um, the two talks that I wanted to uh, pick are Binary for Humans, which was by um, Haley Sheehan from GitHub. And it was a really great talk about boundaries and, and consent beyond um, consent in the way that lots of people think about it. Um, our responsibility to, as developers, what 
consent looks like as far as don't opt someone into a newsletter. They're not able to say no to it then. So it was a really interesting talk comparing, you know, consent and our responsibility for that. And also um, a talk by Kronda Adair called Expanding Your Empathy, which sort of goes along with this, but it was it was a really great talk. Um, and so I wanted to pick that one as well. All right. Well, thanks again for coming. We uh, we all really appreciate you coming and talking about this and, and all of the perspective that we got in this episode. Yeah, thank you, Megan. Thank you for having me. Yeah, that was awesome. All right. Well, I don't think we have anything to announce, so we'll wrap up the show. We'll catch you all next week. A special thanks to HoneyBadger.io for sponsoring Ruby Rogues. They do exception monitoring, uptime, and performance metrics and are an active part of the Ruby community. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. This episode is sponsored by Ninefold. Ninefold provides solid infrastructure and easy setup and deployment for your Ruby and Rails applications. They make it easy to scale and provide guided help in migrating your application. Go sign up at ninefold.com. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join the conversation with the rogues and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a forum that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at rubyrogues.com slash parlor.